Hi, this is Gary Zacharias. I want to welcome you to the Apologist Bookshelf. I realize I never covered a book that was uh, one of my favorites. It's called The Case for a Creator. It's Lee Strobel. Uh, of course, he's got that whole Case for series, Case for Christ, Case for Faith, uh, Case for Miracles, and so on. Uh, this book came out almost 20 years ago, and it's uh, The Case for a Creator. So, he does interviews with Jonathan Wells, uh, Discovery Institute, of course, and Stephen Meyer, who's uh, become just a blockbuster writer and uh, thinker and uh, appears on a lot of shows and all. William Lane Craig has a chapter. J. Wesley Richards, Michael Behe. Meyer has another chapter, an interview with J.P. Moreland. So it's a really, really fun book to read. Uh, of course, you know how it works. Lee Strobel asks the questions and throws challenges up there and sees how the people do as they respond. So I'd like to do one that's probably familiar with you, but uh, bear with me because I think it's worth talking about, and especially there really haven't been, um, as far as I know, any serious challenges to what this man has come up with. So this chapter <clears throat> is called The Evidence of Biochemistry, The Complexity of Molecular Machines. And I, I like what he's woven into this chapter. He starts with, Two quotations, one by Bruce Alberts. He's the president of the National Academy of Sciences. Here's what he says. We've always underestimated the cell. The entire cell can be viewed as a factory that contains an elaborate network of interlocking assembly lines, each of which, which is composed of a set of large protein machines. Why do we call them machines? Precisely because, like machines invented by humans to deal efficiently with the macroscopic world, these protein assemblies contain highly coordinated moving parts. I hope, in fact, you've ever had a chance to do a YouTube search and just type in molecular machines and take a look at some of these machines. It's just amazing what they do. That was me talking. Okay, that's not Bruce Alberts. Uh, <laughs> here's a biochemist, Franklin Harold. We should reject, as a matter of principle, the substitution of intelligent design for the dialogue of chance and necessity. So do you see how he started there? Of course, he says, we've got to get rid of intelligent design. It's chance and necessity. But then notice what he does in the next part of the quotation here. But we must concede that there are presently no detailed Darwinian accounts for the evolution of any biochemical system, only a variety of wishful speculations. That's interesting. Here's a guy who buys into Darwinism, but he admits, he looks around, he says, all we have are wishful speculations. Isn't that an interesting phrase, wishful speculations? So uh, he starts the chapter, of course, as he does all of his chapters, uh, Lee Strobel does, with telling something about the person that he's going to interview. In this case, it's Michael Behe. And he said he was taught in parochial school that uh, the entire process of how life came about was Darwinian evolution. So he thought, okay. And then he got into biochemistry and he'd encounter these really complicated biological systems. And he would scratch his head and she say, gee, I wonder how evolution created that. Well, somebody must know. And then he was doing some postdoctorate research on DNA at the National Institutes of Health. And so he started looking at uh, how they were describing life getting started by naturalistic processes. And he said he began to become kind of skeptical because he said they started looking at the needs that you would have to have to get life start, proteins, a genetic code, a membrane, and so on. And subsequently after that, once the seeds of doubt got planted, then he read a book. Geneticist Michael Denton wrote a book called Evolution, a Theory, and Crisis. 
And I said for the first time, Behe was exposed to somebody who had a scientific critique of Darwinism. He wasn't just a religious nut. In fact, uh, this person was uh, probably a skeptic, uh, agnostic at least. And he was a thoughtful person, but he powerfully challenged whether Darwin's mechanisms of natural selection and mutation could explain how life got started and developed through the ages. So that book got him going. He began looking through the scientific literature. He was looking for, hoping he would find some kind of Darwinian explanation that he assumed was there about how life got started. So he looked all over the place. He said he would find scientists uh, lovingly describing these complex interlocking biological systems. And then they would say, isn't it wonderful how natural selection put this together? But the how was always missing. Nobody ever said, and this is how it happened. And so um, he said there's a scientist who called the single-cell organism a high-tech factory. And this is what this other person has said. He said it's complete with artificial languages and decoding systems, memory banks for information storage and retrieval, elegant control systems that regulate the automated assembly of parts and components, error, fail-safe, and proofreading devices so that you can have quality control. Their assembly processes involve the principles of prefab and modular construction. They said, and it replicates itself within just a matter of a few hours. Wow. So Strobel's picked a good guy. So he sits down with Michael Behe and does the interview. And he starts off, he references Behe's book, Darwin's Black Box. And so he's asking uh, Behe what's going on with the term black box. And Behe says, well, it's a scientific use describing some kind of a system or machine that scientists find interesting, but they don't know how it works. Is it like a computer? He said it's a black box for most of us. He said you hit a key on the keyboard and you do some word processing, you play some games, but nobody has the foggiest idea, most people don't, of how a computer works. Now, he said the same thing was going on in Darwin's day as far as the cell goes. Scientists could look at a cell, they could see it, but it looked like a little glob of jello and a dark spot with a nucleus, and it could divide and it moved around, but they didn't know how it did any of these things. And most scientists thought that, you know, the more we get into the cell, we're going to find that it's actually pretty simple. But the opposite happened. It was complexity, as Behe says, is complexity all the way down. The cell is amazingly complicated. And it's run by micro-machines that are the right shape, the right size, the right strength, the right interaction. says so that really challenges a test that Darwin provided. And so Behe says, you know what Darwin said in his Origin of Species? Quote, if it could be demonstrated that any complex organ existed which could not possibly have been formed by numerous, successive, slight modifications, my theory would absolutely break down. So, that's where Behe got the idea of a system that's irreducibly complex. And what that means is it has a number of different pieces or components, and they all work together to accomplish something. And if you were to remove any one of those components, the system would no longer function. And, of course, he uses the example of a mousetrap. That's his famous illustration. You've got all these pieces of a mousetrap. You've got that flat wooden platform. You've got the metal hammer. You've got the spring. And you've got a catch. And then you got a metal bar that connects and holds the hammer back. I mean, all this kind of stuff. Now, if you took away any of those parts, you wouldn't have a mousetrap that didn't quite work as well. You would have a mousetrap that didn't do anything. 
And he says, evolution can't produce an irreducibly complex biological machine suddenly, all at once. See, that's the problem, isn't it? If it's going to work, evolution has to produce every piece of that mousetrap all at the same time. But it's too complicated. And he said, you can't produce it by numerous successive, just slight modifications of some earlier system because any earlier system is going to be missing a part and then it couldn't function. And he says life is actually based on these molecular machines. And so I'm going to skip over the mousetrap part because I'm sure you've heard of that one before. And he talks about another thing that's amazing out there. It's the cilium. And the cilia are whip-like hairs on the surface of cells. And uh, it says if the cell is stationary, the cilia moves fluid across the cell surface. And he gives an example. He said, you know, you've got cilia lining your respiratory tract. Every cell has about 200 of them, and they beat in synchrony so that they can sweep mucus toward your throat to get rid of it. So it says what they're finding out now with electron microscopes is that the cilia are quite complicated molecular machines. They're made up of 200 protein parts. And so he goes into detail of these parts, so I'll skip over that. But it said they convert a sliding motion into a bending motion so the cilia can move. And it says you only get the motion of the cilia when you got all these pieces together. Not one piece by itself is going to make it work. Okay, so I thought that was interesting. And then he moves along to talk about the bacterial flagellum. And again, he spent time on that, so I won't do much on that. But he says, you know, keep in mind the cilia are acting kind of like ores to move a cell. But then in the 70s, they discovered the flagellum that's on the bacteria. It's like a rotary propeller. He said, they are so efficient, too. He said, it's kind of like an outboard. So he said, they're, they're way more incredible. The, the flagellum has a propeller. It's long and whip-like, and it's made out of a protein called flagellin. And it's hooked up to a drive shaft with a hook protein, kind of like a universal joint, so it can rotate. And several types of proteins act as bushing material, so the drive shaft can penetrate inside the bacterial wall and attached to a rotary motor. I mean, honest to goodness, I hope you have a chance to take a look at it online. Go do a YouTube search. Look up bacterial flagellum. They look like something invented by Toyota or General Motors. These things can go 10,000 revolutions a minute. He said not only that, but the propeller can stop spinning within a quarter turn and instantly start spinning the other way at 10,000 RPM. You know, I've mentioned this to my uh, apologetics class, and I tell them, Go out on the freeway and get your car and get it up as high RPM as you can get. Let's say 5,000. Probably can't make 10,000. So get it up to about 5,000 and then put it in reverse and see what happens. And everybody laughs because they know it just destroy the engine. But this thing can do that. And how big are we talking about? Consider its size, he says. B, he says a flagellum is just a couple of microns long. What's a micron? About one twenty thousandth of an inch. And the motor itself is about a hundred thousandth of an inch. It says even with all our technology, we can't produce anything like that. It's just amazing. Okay, so he's talking about that. Uh, what's going on in that? There are molecular trucks and highways inside our cells. It's called the intracellular transport system. So he said what we've got here is not a cell that's just a simple bag of soup with everything sloshing around. Said so you got all sorts of areas, kind of like rooms in a house, and you got to get the material from one place to the next. 
And you've got the nucleus, and you've got the mitochondria, that produces energy. You've got the endoplasmic reticulum, that produces proteins. The Golgoi apparatus, that's a way station for proteins that are being sent elsewhere. The lysosome, it's like a garbage disposal unit, and on and on and on. He says, just take the ribosome. Okay, the ribosome, that's 50 large molecules that has a million atoms. It's an automated factory that can synthesize any protein that it's instructed to make by DNA. So it's a little factory there. So amazing. He said, well, now you got to have molecular trucks and little highways for them to travel on. You have to identify which components are supposed to go into what truck. And so you've got all these things going on there, transporting all this material all the way across. Um, he talks about blood clotting. Now, there's something else that was uh, in his book, Darwin's Black Box, I thought was fascinating. He said blood clotting. Do you know there's something like 10 steps that use 20 different molecular components? Because, I mean, think about it. If you cut your arm, let's say, uh, you want it to bleed a little bit at first to, to get rid of the impurity, but then you want it to clot but then you want it to stop clotting because if it keeps clotting and works its way up your arm and over to your heart, you're done for. So you have to have proteins signaling start to clot, stop the clot, and things like that. So you've got all these things going on. Amazing. It says if you make a clot 20 minutes after all the blood is drained from your body, a little late, you're going to die. If the blood clot isn't confined to where the cut is, your whole blood system could solidify and you'll die. What about making a clot? What if it doesn't cover the whole cut? Then you'll die. So just on and on and on. So let me skip over toward the end of the chapter, but I just thought you would appreciate hearing uh, some of these things, not only the bacterial flagellum, which is pretty famous in the, the mousetrap analogy, but uh, the cilia and the uh, blood clotting mechanism and so on. So let me, uh, let me go down here toward the end of the chapter. He says complex biological systems have yet to be explained by naturalistic means. He said, that's a fact. He said, even Darwinists admit that in their candid moments. And can I stop there for just a minute? Because I find that to be so true. I've read a lot in this field. And among themselves, and writing for others in the field, you'll hear them. Some of them are very honest. And they'll talk about things like uh, just dreams and wishes that they could get this done uh, this understood. But instead, when they're talking to the public and all, when they're doing uh, interviews on television, it's like, oh yes, we have it all figured out. But remember what that biochemist Franklin Harold said at the beginning of the chapter, it's just a variety of wishful speculations, and they will admit it among themselves. Darwinists will admit it. Now he says, as science advances, we're finding more and more complexity, not less and less, more complexity in the cellular world. So I'm going to end the chapter with uh, what he does, which I thought was really good. This is a concession by a microbiologist named James Shapiro at the University of Chicago. Now, he reviewed Behe's book, Darwin's Black Box. And here's what he had to say. He's not a uh, believer in uh, God, as far as I know. He says, there are no detailed Darwinian accounts for the evolution of any fundamental biochemical or cellular system, only a variety of wishful speculations. Doesn't that sound familiar? How about Alan Sandage? Here's what he says. He's a highly respected scientist. He says, The world is too complicated in all its parts and interconnections to be due to chance alone. Isn't that interesting? So he thinks there's a God. He says, I'm convinced that the existence of life with all its order 
and each of its organisms is simply too well put together. He says, how do all these parts know these things? How are, you know, what's going on? He said, the more one learns of biochemistry, the more unbelievable it becomes, unless there's some type of organizing principle. What does he mean by that? An architect for believers, a mystery to be solved by science, even as to why, sometime in the indefinite future for materialist reductionalists, there's people who don't believe uh, that there might be a God, that they need to understand that. So I think that's a really interesting chapter. I want to come back to the book because there, I love science, and I think there's a lot here that we can get from it. All right, well, thank you. Take care. Bye-bye.